Well, the, uh, the story goes um, that there was a florist company in a small town that hired a teenager to make deliveries. And one day, the, the teenager uh, screwed up the deliveries. In fact, he was delivering to a, a new church, celebrating a new sanctuary, celebrating a new uh, place of worship, and he was supposed to deliver to a funeral. And the story goes, he got those mixed up. And the, the pastor of the church gives this phone call to the florist company and says, hey, I got this new church building with the flowers sitting at the front of the stage saying, rest in peace. And he's angry and he's furious. And the florist says, you're mad. Well, somewhere there's a casket in this town with flowers that say, good luck at your new location. <laughs> thank you. I'll be here all week. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, Love that. Love the opportunity to do those things. Um, Nate, well done on that one. That was a good one right there. Um, making mistakes, we get it. We get it. We, we do things wrong. Uh, we screw up. And sometimes there are bigger consequences with the mistakes that we make. And sometimes there are little consequences to the mistakes that we make. Uh, and so a mix-up like flowers ending up at the wrong place, yeah, you're going to have some laughs about it. But there's a mix-up that we can find to be truly one of the biggest mistakes we can make. And it has everything to do with the gospel, with the good news, with who Jesus is and what he's done. And inside the church, we are capable of a huge mistake that actually will affect everything we do. So you can see why Paul would be a little turned up, if you will, about this issue. Because all of life is at stake with what we do with the good news. Uh, the, the letter to the Galatian church is probably the earliest written letter we have, less than or right around 20 years after Jesus walked the earth. It's a big deal. It's a big deal at how close to the source these words land on the church's ears. Paul had actually brought the good news about Jesus. And the good news is not information. The good news is a person. It's Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection, crossing all sorts of boundaries, moving from Jewish thought and, and teaching into Gentile thought and teaching, and it crosses all boundaries. And it's actually a fulfillment of a promise made in the Old Testament. When God called Abraham to go out, he said, I'm gonna make you a blessing to all the nations. Not having any clue how that was possible, we're seeing how it's possible through Jesus and through what he's done. And so by faith, like Paul is telling all of these people, it's not based on what you do or you don't do. It's based on what Jesus has done. And it's by faith that we're saved. Because here's the deal. If it was by any other way that we can have, find salvation, wholeness, forgiveness, all the things we're looking for, if it was about us, we would boast about it. We would get arrogant. We would get cocky. And we think, I have made smarter decisions than everyone else, so therefore, I'm better. It's what we do when we, uh, we're just human beings, and we're proud, and we're boastful. And Paul's saying, look, there is no work that you can boast in more than the work of what Jesus has done. So cut it out. Put your faith in Christ. That brings wholeness. That brings forgiveness. That brings salvation. All, it, it's the door to everything. So you could see why Paul would be so hot with the Galatian church because they were missing the point. Galatians chapter one, verse six says this. 
I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. So it's a pretender. And the church was like, this is great. No, it's not great. It is a pretender. Verse seven, but it is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. He's shocked. He actually later goes on to use words like, you fools, you are being tricked. There are pretenders among you and you're missing it. There's a reason he's doing this. She has to be able to return to Christ. And sometimes you gotta get hot. <laughs> sometimes you gotta say words. Sometimes the intensity level of if you miss this, you will miss everything, it demands more than, well, maybe, maybe you should think about. Maybe, maybe you should, um, maybe you should consider, uh, 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 no, no. There are times when you go, you miss this, you miss it all. Wake up. Wake up your heart. Listen, pay attention. These are the things that matter most. And why would we be so silent on it? You can see why Paul would go there. Now, if you've read the Old Testament at all, uh, early on in my, my, my trying to figure out, you know, what did I believe and what does scripture teach? I would get so angry with Israel. Now, maybe you can relate. Like, you would watch Israel in slavery. God steps into time, comes and comes close to them, and proves himself to Israel over and over and over. Plagues, rescue. They actually walk out of Egypt with gifts and all this stuff, and they're rescued out of slavery. And they walk through a sea, and he feeds them with food from the sky, and he leads them by a cloud and a fire and all these things. But yet they still complain. They still still sin. They still run. They actually tell God, we would rather go back to being slaves. You're going, are you serious? You guys just don't get it. What is wrong with you people? And that was when I was young. Okay. Those of you who have walked with the Lord for any amount of time. Now you go, I get Israel. I totally understand them. I get it. Because there are times, look, I mean, like how many times have we asked for the Lord to provide for something in our lives and we immediately see that happen or we see it happen over time and then another need comes up and we're like, God, I don't even think you're real. I don't even think you exist anymore. How many times have we, have we seen God turn a hard heart towards him and we've gone, well, I don't think you can do it to mine. I don't think you can do it to my heart. I don't think you have any, any time for my heart. How many times have we seen God faithful and the very next morning we've gone, hmm, probably doesn't exist anymore. The longer you journey with him, the quicker I think you are to see how just like Israel you really are. Like we like to think we're the heroes. <laughs> we are so fickle. We are so emotionally response people. We just, we go with what works in the moment. That's what we do. But thankfully, the scripture is not a story about our faithfulness to God. It's about his faithfulness to us. 
This is what Paul is saying. You gotta get back to this because if you miss it, you're gonna miss life itself. Not only are we capable of forgetting just how powerful God is, but we will actually come up with ways to add to what he's already done. We will come up with ways to make our resume look amazing and try and hold it up in front of the cross of Christ. And we're like, yeah, I know that cross is good and everything and it, it satisfied your, everything that you needed done and, every, and your righteousness and everything. But look at my resume. Look at what I've done on top of what Jesus has done. Like when you start saying that out loud, you begin to go, how ridiculous that sounds. But sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you need to go, oh, right. I really am holding my resume, covering it up what Jesus has done. God, thank you for your mercy on me. Thank you that you didn't toss me aside for making little of what Jesus did and actually making more of my resume than Christ's work on the cross. If we miss this, we will miss life itself. Galatians chapter one, starting in verse 11. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source. No one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. There's two points this morning. Two points. The first being humans come up with one plan. Now, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but humans come up with one plan. And you want that plan? Here it is. It's two words. Save yourself. That's the plan. Now, it may look like a lot of different things, but here's the point of save yourself. All the responsibility is on you. That's human plan. That's number one. That is what we do. Operation save yourself. All the responsibility is on you. And what I, what I want to make sure first, though, is that you understand when Paul is saying this didn't come from human reasoning, he's not arguing against intelligence. He's not arguing against being a, a, an informed individual. He's not arguing against reason or logic. In fact, Paul was amazing at all of those things. God wired this dude to kill you in an argument. He would destroy you. Logic, reason, intelligence. You will get blasted. We'd all get blasted because that's how he made Paul. So he's not saying, oh, intelligence and thinking is terrible. No, in fact, he was brilliant. But what he is saying is that the plan of salvation, the plan of wholeness, the plan of forgiveness didn't come up from here. If you've noticed the scripture, look at it. We don't look very good. We don't even have an out for ourselves. Like when you read the scripture more and more, you go, wow, this really isn't something that we would come up with. Because if we came up with it, we'd give ourselves an out. We would make it about us. We would give ourselves a way to find wholeness and forgiveness and, and, and peace and salvation on our own. But this plan did not find its start here. The scriptures claim that God revealed this plan of salvation. But what Paul is saying is that there are two ideas of good news out there. Just two. 
There are two ideas of what will bring wholeness, two ideas of what it means to be saved. It's either from human reasoning that we're gonna decide what, what saves us, or God has made another way. It's either from human reasoning that we decide what makes us whole, or God has provided another way. It's either from human reasoning that we see our fate is sealed because we are the captains of our destiny, or God has made another way. No matter how you break it down, the first way of thinking is, Jason, you can do it yourself. I can do it myself. It works like this. If human reasoning says, I don't want to be alone, we initiate salvation plans that might look like this. Okay, early to bed, early to rise makes a woman healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's why you're wiser than me. It's Stephen. Hi, my name's Monroe. Uh, you've probably already noticed that I have incredibly blue eyes. Okay, um, I like to talk to people uh, deep into the night. I play guitar. I'm Eitan. Hi, I'm Fred. Hi, my name's Mike, and if you're sitting there watching this tape smoking your cigarette, well, hit the fast-forward button, because I don't smoke, and I don't like people who do smoke. Hi, Mom. Um, I do fashion photography, and I do consider myself a refined valley dude. Whoso binds to himself a joy, doth its winged life destroy. At night, I operate a damsel in distress hotline. I guess you'd call me a knight. Guess you would. So, if the plan is, I don't want to be alone, you enact, I don't want to be alone, plan one. And you end up on a VHS or on YouTube forever because you thought the way to salvation, the way to wholeness was to put yourself out there for a lady to find you. See, when we do anything that we do, our attempt is to save ourselves from whatever it is we've come up with being the worst case scenario. I don't want to be alone. Well, I better get myself out there. I better do something. I better make it happen. I'm going to end up on alone and I don't want to see that happen. So yeah, I'll make a YouTube video. I don't care. I don't care what it costs me because I don't want to be alone. But you can take that to any, any situation. I don't want to be broke. So what do you do? You throw yourself to education, to job, to climbing the corporate ladder, to doing whatever you can because Operation Jason Don't Be Broke is in full effect. I'm gonna save myself, I'm gonna make myself whole, I'm gonna do what it takes to get what I need because I think I need it. Human reasoning. I save myself, I do it myself. What about I don't want to be undervalued? How many of us are throwing ourselves whatever it is, because we just want to be valued. So you know what we do? We do everything we can to make sure people see how valuable we are. That includes an incredible online life. That includes an incredible social media profile. That includes anything and everything so that someone somewhere is seeing that you are valuable. Because if your rescue is from not being valued, you're going to put in an act, a plan that will find that value. 
It's what we do. It is, a good, is, it, is it a good thing not wanting to be alone? Absolutely. Is it a good thing not to, I don't want to be broke? Absolutely. Is value a good thing? Yes. But when we believe that those things make us whole, all of these good news thoughts come from our way of thinking. If I do this, then I'll get this. Human reasoning. We even do this, and this is what's scary, with religion. This is probably where the main shock from Paul's heart stemmed. This church had heard Jesus had done everything they needed for life, for forgiveness, for wholeness, for salvation. They had heard the truth, they had responded to it, and they were able to walk in this brand new relationship with God. Everything they needed had been supplied for them. Not by their own plans, but by God's. Belief in Jesus is what brought them wholeness and hope and rest and forgiveness. And yet, somehow, they were moving away from God's rescue plan to enact their own. Oh, Jesus is probably the front door. He's good. That's great. But now I've got to do everything to keep up with him. I've got to do everything to keep up and keep my status before the Lord in good standing. I have to, I have to, I have to. And the words and the laws and the actions and the deeds all start piling up. And you know what happens when they start piling up? We make those the main thing and we forget Jesus. Please, please hear me when I say Paul needs to do anything and everything in his power for this church to hear him. Because she will miss life itself if she forgets this. We can look at God and we can form a human thought process to earning God's grace. It's not really grace if you're earning it, but we don't think about that when we're in the midst of it. Like we only think about all we've done. So it's not really grace, it's a payment, right? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for God to pay us back because we've been good. We have behaved. We have done enough. Again, resume holding up in front of the cross is a terrible, terrible decision. Put down the resume. Look at the cross. Drop your resume. Nothing you can hold up will ever impress God more than what Christ has done. So stop. This is essentially what Paul is saying to the Galatian church. You can't build a resume better than what Jesus has accomplished. Human reasoning will keep us from freedom. Either way, any way we look at it, when it comes to human reasoning and thought, the responsibility lies on us. I will save myself. I can make it. I can do it. The responsibility is on us. This is not a free gift, nor is it freedom. If you read through Galatians, you will see freedom becomes more and more the heart of this letter. Now, our default is save ourselves, and here's the problem with save ourselves. I alone make myself whole. I alone make myself this. I alone do all of these things. It's the same struggle that Adam and Eve walked with, guys. It's the same thing. Adam and Eve, I don't want to be near God. I want to be God. I don't want you to call the shots and provide wholeness for me and help for me and safety for me and rest for me. I want to be the one to call the shots. And that's what they end up doing. And it breaks relationship with God. And it is the very same thing that breaks our relationship with him as well. 
God, I don't want you to provide all these things. I want to provide these things for myself. In fact, I don't even wanna hear your words on what will bring me wholeness and forgiveness and salvation. I actually think I know better. So I'm not just gonna say no to you. I'm actually gonna say these other things, they'll do it better than you. That's where sin continues to do its most destructive work in our hearts and in our lives. I got this. So there are two lies that you can believe when you're trying to save yourself. First, when you hear the gospel, your response becomes, I don't need to be saved. First response, I don't need it. I have everything I need. I have everything I want. I don't, there's nothing I could possibly need. When you are in self-salvation mode, that's how you can respond. That's your first response. I can do it myself. I've got this. I'm good. I have all I need. I define what's best. That's the first scenario. But there is a darker, more disturbing truth that we begin to believe. And that's the second phrase. I can't be saved. When you live a life believing that somehow your wisdom, your choices, your direction, your decisions determine everything, you eventually get to a point where you go, I have made terrible decisions in life. You eventually come to a point where you are so broken over all that you yourself have given yourself to, and you begin to go, I can't be saved. I will never be whole. I can never be forgiven. This is a result of walking, believing, I do it myself. I think we're all very familiar with the proud and arrogant, I don't need to be saved. But we don't talk about the dark and despairing, I can't be saved. And I know for a fact there's some of you in this room who are like, yeah, this Jason, he's talking about this Jesus, but that's for other people. People. That's what the enemy does. That's what the flesh does. That's what pride in our hearts does. It, it says, I can't be saved. I know what I've done. I know where I've been. I know what I've seen. I cannot have relationship with God. So I'm just going to cast my life onto whatever my lot is. I'm going to make my bed and I'm going to lay in it. Friends, I need you to know the story of the gospel truly is you made your bed but you don't have to lay in it. And this morning, if you are here hearing the words, you can't be saved, you can't be whole, you're too fragmented, you're too broken, my heart has been handed to a million things. The great thing about the good news is not that God tweaks portions of your life, he makes it new, like all of it. God doesn't just look for the great things in our lives and amplify them, he actually goes, no, you're dead. Let me make you alive. You're empty. Let me make you whole. You have to stop thinking that somehow God just tweaks the good things about you and he kind of, he turns down the volume on the bad things about you. No, the gospel promises dead people come to life. Nothing more, nothing less. Dead to life. That's the power of the good news in our lives. But what does it actually say? God has another plan. So where is the plan that we come up with 
is I save myself, God's plan, I'll save you. My plan, I'll save myself. God's plan, I'll save you. My plan, all the responsibility lies with me. God's plan, all the responsibility lies on him. My plan, I'll save me. God's plan, I'll save you. This, these are the only two messages in the world. There's only two. Either you do it or he does it. And there is no combination of both. It's either all on him or the responsibility is all on me. But the good news is that he saves us. Listen, and in the way that Paul does this, the way he defends the good news is he actually starts sharing about his life. Verse 13, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. He didn't just say, I did my best to do everything right. I did my best to destroy your work, God. Verse 14, I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Part of what Paul had to correct was the attack on his name by these false teachers in the region of Galatia. Not only were they discrediting Paul's teaching, but they were discrediting him. They were like, you do know Paul's not a good guy, right? You do know that he, he, he's not who you think he is. And what I love about Paul is that he did not take a chance to defend himself. But by the way he tells his story, he actually defends the gospel. He defends the good news for every hearer. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? Um, I am a good guy. He actually says, you know what they're saying about me? They're right. They're absolutely right. I did a lot of terrible things. I actually, it's funny, in living in Asheville, I actually met a guy who told me to Google him. You ever met somebody that arrogant? Like, I was, we were talking and he was like, dude, just Google me. I was like, I think I'm offended. <laughs> like, you're just, you're not gonna share your story with me? You're just gonna tell me to Google you? That's rude. I think that's rude. Is that rude? I don't know. I don't know social etiquette for being told to Google somebody, but it felt rude. And I was kind of offended. But in a sense, Paul's like, look, my life is an open book. I need you to know that everything they're saying, me hunting Christ followers down, me trying to destroy the work, me trying to, me trying to, they're right. All of those things, they're a part of my story. All of those things someone could learn about me by just asking for people's opinions about me. My story is not pretty. But Paul goes from church persecutor to church planter. He goes from someone who's trying to destroy the faith to declaring that faith that he was trying to destroy. He actually goes from wanting to, and this to me I think is the most dramatic transformation because it's not a message changing, it's his life changing. Paul goes from trying to kill Christians 
to killing people who, who would share this message so that others would believe. He's, he goes from trying to kill them to he actually begins to lay his life down so that people will hear that same message he once tried to destroy. Paul doesn't take a minute to defend himself. His voice, his life, his words defend the gospel. And how radical that really is. Because it's affecting everything. He continually writes about this transformation, not by his own devise, but listen, by God's. Starting in verse 15. He's just shared about how wicked and destructive he was. And he says these words, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at the time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul did not defend himself by telling his story. He defended the gospel. He defended the truth and the invitation that no life is too good and no life is too far gone for the grace and the mercy found in Christ. Paul's story is a defense, and it's not about him, but it was about the heart of God. Paul is a perfect picture of the two swings in the pendulum that we can make. The first being Paul could have said, I'm good. I don't need Jesus because I'm good. Man, I was more zealous for learning and intelligence and knowing God's law and behavior and doing all the right things. I don't need Jesus. Like he could have, he could have lived in that camp. But at the same time, because of Paul's past and his history and hearing this message of grace and Jesus, he could have gone over here gone, I killed his followers. I wanted to destroy the church. I thought everything that God said through Jesus was a joke. There's no way God can save me. That is, of course, if salvation is from us. But it's not. But it's not. Paul could have lived in either of the camps. But thankfully, 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 Everything changes when God steps in. First Timothy, he actually gives testimony more and more about his life. And he says this, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ 
in my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime, I love this, as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. This is what it means to be an example of grace. When someone looks at your life and goes, I know where they've been. Like, I know what they've been a part of. And if the world knew that they had done this, that, and the other, they wouldn't think them so great. But wait a minute. The gospel is saying they can be a part of God's kingdom? They can be a a part of... Huh. That's weird. That's an example of grace. See, far too often we think we're holding up trophies of people who have done it all right and perfect and everything. And we don't see that anywhere in scripture. So we need to stop that. We need to cut that out. Examples of grace are different than trophies. I didn't win anything. You know what? If I brought anything to this party, it's the sin that required Jesus to die. There you go. You want to have something to bring to the table? You got it now, okay? The power of the gospel is that when people look on our lives, they go, I just might be able to follow Jesus too. Because I know where you've been and I know what you've been a part of. I know what you've seen. And if this grace is just big enough for you, then it might be able to include me too. That's an example of grace. Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel calls us out of religion as much as it calls us out of irreligion. Meaning, you who've grown up in the church your whole life, have followed all the rules, have checked all the boxes, have done everything right that you possibly can, you need Jesus too. The person who has walked away from it and smashed everything and slandered everything and done everything wrong and slept with everything that walks and done every drug that there is possible, you need Jesus too. Like, this is the power of the gospel. There is no one who doesn't. In fact, we have to stop believing that there are those who don't. Paul gets turned up about this, and I hope you understand Why? Because everything is at stake. What do we do with this? Well, firstly, we just understand no one thinks like God does. No one. No one thinks like God, especially when it comes to issues of of salvation and wholeness and forgiveness. Listen to the invitation that he gives to come. In Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse one, he says this. He says, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. 
even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Now, if you continue reading in those verses, all he does is talk about finding life. He talks about his promises. He actually says the wicked can turn to me. He's like, those who would be labeled as wicked in this day and age, they too can turn. They can come. They hungry. They thirsty. Come on. Come to the table. It's free. Who's ever heard of a plan like this? You can't pay for it. You can't buy it, but I'm offering it. Come on. And as I was thinking about these words, I'll never, ever forget. Several years ago, I went with a team to, to East Asia. We were in a coffee shop and I read the story of the prodigal son. And we just opened the floor for questions. There was a man who stood up in that coffee shop. He grabbed the microphone from the person who was hosting the questions. He grabs the microphone, shoves the microphone in his face. And he says, this is a very wonderful story. Like he said it like that, angry. He said, where have you heard this story from? I said, well, it's actually a story that Jesus told to give us a picture of who, who God really is and how he celebrates when we return and when we come home. And I said, well, why don't we talk afterwards? I sat down with him in a booth and I said, let me just, let me start with a foundation. What have you heard of Jesus? Anything, any story, any ideas, any phrases, anything that comes, I just wanted to see what I was dealing with. He said, the only thing I know about you Christians, only thing I know is that God only helps those who help themselves. I said, that story tells a very different story, doesn't it? He was like, yeah, it does. Listen to Isaiah's words. Verse eight, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The scripture does not teach God only helps those who help themselves. It's not even in the Bible. But this, this was the only phrase he connected to Jesus and to himself. So he believed he could not find wholeness. He believed he could not find salvation. It broke him. But then to hear that God's ways are not ours, that God's thoughts are not like ours. And look, here's the, th here's the deal. I understand when we like to go, well, God does things differently than I would have. We quote these words often when we say that. This is about salvation. This is about God's rescue. This is about God's ways of how he devises plans and thoughts and things to bring people to himself that are not like we would think. He changes the game. Moral and religious performance, being good, let's just say that, does not exempt you from a need for salvation. Just as a deep, dark sin, being bad, does not exempt you from the opportunity for salvation. Neither the good nor the bad can find themselves exempt from this great need. This is the strangeness of good news. C.S. Lewis, the author everyone quotes to sound smarter, says this, 
Christianity must be from God, for who else could have thought it up? Who else could have thought it up? As we close this morning, I want you to hear Paul's words as he speaks of the strangeness of this good news. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's writing to a church that's really messed up, and he says this. He says, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. We're getting it out there. There are two messages, either I do it myself or God does it. There are two messages, responsibilities on me or the responsibilities on God. Two messages, I save myself or God saves me. That's it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. And he made us pure and holy. And he has freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. This is our new boast. If our boast is in the Lord, then it's his responsibility it's on him to save me. See, I, I could make my boast about myself if it was about me finding wholeness and salvation and forgiveness. I could make it about me. But the message of the good news is that it's on him. And he saves. And he has done enough. And he has rescued. The power of the gospel is not only that it goes against human thought and reasoning, and it's foolish to those who hate it, but it is the very thing that a Christ follower boasts about. It's what we talk about most. It has to be. Because if all we do is talk about ourselves, all we're doing is blending in with the rest of the world. How great am I? How fantastic decision maker am I? How smart in investments have I been? When most of the world is going, I'll never be those things. I'll never have that. I can't have that. I've lost it. The beautiful thing about the way Paul did this is that Paul reached into his past to communicate both his strengths and weaknesses, but ultimately to defend God's goodness. He helped people see where he could have had it, he shouldn't have had it, but because God intervened, everything changed. God used one of the smartest men of the day to communicate the most foolish of messages. But to Paul, it remained everything. If the church at Galatia missed this, they would miss absolutely everything. John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, just so we're clear, 
Puritan writer who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, I want to encourage you to. He had an incredible view of how the way of the believer's life would look. And he said this. He said, there will be some strong saints. And I'm not talking about um, people of the cloth. He's saying believers, because that's what believers are called in scripture. They're called saints. And I know that's weird for you, because all you're doing is thinking about yourself. And you're like, I'm no saint. No, you're not. But Jesus has covered you, so therefore you are a saint. So there you go. So he says this. He says, there will be some strong saints in the next generation because the young men and women in my day are such gross sinners. And when the Lord saved them by his mercy, they would love him much because they had so much forgiven. It's the story that Jesus tells. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And according to these words, you can't be too good for the gospel and you can't be too bad for the gospel. So we better be thankful much. We have been forgiven much. Human reasoning says, I do, therefore I get. God's thoughts say, I've done. I've done. I've done. It's finished. Now go and live. This morning, when we take communion together, it's around the room, the corners of the room, there'll be small plates with some bread and some juice. And you take that bread and you dip it in the juice. And just like everything else we've talked about this morning, it doesn't get you any better standing with God when you take this meal. It doesn't. It doesn't impress him. It doesn't change his mind about you. It doesn't make you stronger or weaker or give you more, uh, more right standing in the churches. It does. It, it, all it does, as Jesus said, is remember me. Remember that my life, my death, and my resurrection has, has made you new and it sets you free. And we take this meal until Jesus returns. We do. You need to look around the room and see people taking this meal going, wow, it's been a hard week. I didn't know there were any other people who believe the the saving message of Jesus in this town. Man, I'm so encouraged right now. You need to take this meal in and go, I have really been trying to add things to the gospel this week. I have been trying to, my performance has been what I've looked at. Stop it. Look at the cross. Stop holding up your resume in front, of, in front of Jesus. Drop it. And look at Jesus. That's what this meal is. Paul said in Romans chapter one, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. All of life itself is at stake with what we do with this good news. Father, we love you. And I ask this morning that you'd make it very clear to us where we're putting our faith. Lord, if we are putting our trust in human reasoning, Would you show us? Lord, would you return us to your marvelous grace and the rescue plan that you had 
from the very beginning of time that Jesus would be enough? Would we put down our self-saving efforts and trust your saving effort? It's in your name we pray.